This is O Ship, the show where experts and leaders look back at their biggest moments of failure just so you can avoid making them. And there is no one better to squeeze the naked truth out of our charismatic guests than your host, Chameleon Collective Founding Partner, Freddie Laker. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another week of O Ship. This week, we're going to follow a format that we did with a very popular episode uh, we recently did with Scott Monty, where we asked each other what we thought were some of the most important leadership questions. Scott had five, I had five. We didn't warn each other what the questions were, and it made for some really great and engaging content and a little bit of a healthy debate between us. Today, I've got another really brilliant person joining me called Andrea Moore. And we're going to have a debate about some of the most important questions in the e-commerce business. Now, why should you care today? So Andrea is someone I've had a chance to work with personally. Uh, she is currently the SVP of, of digital e-commerce at uh, digital and e-commerce at, at Nest NYC. She has been, and I think currently an adjunct professor at uh, FIT or the Fashion Institute of Technology. She has led e-commerce for companies like the jewelry brand Alex and Annie, uh, New York and Company, and the JGL Group. And she was even a partner at Command Collective at one point, which is when I got to work with her. Bluntly, she's one of the nicest and most talented people I've, I've ever had a chance to work with her. So I'm a big, big fan of hers. And that's why I invited her to join me on O-Ship today. And you're going to get to see a little bit of that in action uh, while we ask each other some challenging questions. And hopefully she doesn't make too much of a fool of me with that big brain of hers. And with that, here we go with another week of O-Ship. Andrea, welcome to the show. How are you? Hey, Freddie. Good to see you. Good to see you too. I, you, I don't know if I had a chance to tell you this yet, but this you're my last guest before going on holiday for two weeks. I have not had a chance to go on holiday in like almost like 20 months. I'm counting the seconds, but if I had to go on holiday, I know I'm ending it on a high note with our ship by having you on today. Awesome. That's great. I'm so excited for you. Take some time okay. off. Definitely do. In fact, if I remember correctly, and I don't like using the uh, pandemic uh, or uh, or the C word on a ship because it always gets us in trouble with the advertisers. <laughs> but if I remember correctly, the le- the last time I got to travel, I think you and I were together in, uh, in New York. So it's going to be fun to, to get out there and get moving around again. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, Andrea. You know, I gave a little bit of an overview of of your background and experience uh, in the show, and I hope I, in the intro show, I hope I did you justice. Anything you want to add about, you know, maybe some of the things you're passionate about, uh, you know, a little bit more around your, your e-com experience? So I've spent the last 20 years launching and building e-commerce businesses for omnichannel retailers. And I launched my first, fun fact, I launched my first website in 1999, which seems like awesome. a really long time ago now. Yeah. And I guess what I would say is some things are totally the same as they were then and Yet so many things are radically different. So it's been actually really amazing to be kind of on the journey for so long and to have kind of seen how things have changed over time. So Big time. And, and I think, um, would you argue that, uh, and I'm not counting this as one of our questions, but you know, do you think more, more, more has changed in the last couple of years than the, you know, a lot of the years before it, or is it just, it's always been changing this quickly? I think it's relative. Like when you look back on things, 
they have a little glow to them. But I think if you think of about the 1990, what, how like sexy and hot.com was in 1999 and then what the dot-com bubble was like in 2001 and then the housing crap, like when you think about all these kind of economic things that impacted the industry, the launch of the iPhone, I mean, everything's always been changing really rapidly. The last couple of years have been like warp speed though, for sure. Yeah, agreed. Wow. We're getting sure we're going to get into some of that today. So uh, Andrew and I have prepared a list of questions. Uh, we are, uh, you know, have not shared them in advance. We wanted to, you know, kind of catch each other in the moment and see what kind of answers we came up with. And we're going to ask each other five questions each that we think are really important questions that if you're entering the e-commerce space, whether you're a leader in the marketing world, whether you're an entrepreneur, you're a business owner, you're an investor, uh, we think that there's going to be some great, great nuggets of wisdom and learning here for you. And we hope you enjoy the the show uh, in all its glory today. So I'm going to kick off, if that's okay. Uh, I'll claim uh, I, you know, host host rights. I think this Before is you a do question. That, Freddie, I just want to ask: Are you saying you want to go off the dome? <laughs> is that are you referring to this dome? I, I had to do it. I'm sorry. <laughs> It's a light reflects off it nicely. I, I'm hopefully, uh, hopefully the you know good answers and good thoughts do as well. I wish it was solar powered. If it was, I'd be in, I'd be in real, a, a real uh, good place. <laughs> so, I think this first one is is really relevant given how crazy things are um, right now in in the hiring world. But I don't want to make it all about where we are today. But I'd love to get your take on when building out a digital team, an ecom whether it's ecom digital. Do you outsource uh, or do you hire the talent internally? And if so, you know, kind of how and when does that make sense? I think the answer is yes. I mean, I think you do both. And I've done both. I've had mixes of teams of internal and external resources. And I think you can get the most benefit by leveraging internal and external skill sets. I think it's best to use outside resources when you're just starting and you need subject matter experts, but you maybe can't afford them or you want to hire someone for 10 hours a week and ramp that up or down based on budget or need, I think then then there are some things that you do want to have core competency in. Anything that really requires a lot of internal communication with other departments. And I think as you grow a business, you can bring in resources over time. But I, I, I'm always in favor of a mixed model, if you mm. will. And there are some roles I will almost never bring in-house. Like we have a... Um, a consultant that's a data scientist, they're nearly mm. a, da- a really good data scientist is nearly impossible to find and let alone yeah, on board full time. Same with developers, super hard to find. You know, the, the types of people that, you know, I think people are trying to build out in these teams right now, what's tricky, I used to see a lot of people want to outsource. I even saw this with people doing this with, with Community Collective, where they were in more challenging geographies, let's call it. So they're, you know, uh, middle America companies, they're in Kansas or whatever, and they didn't feel that they could access the digital talent they wanted. And then because there was this mindset of, of hiring locally, I guess that's one of the really interesting things that's also happened now is that if you do want to hire, you know, where people maybe were outsourcing, I wonder how much more the in-housing trend uh, has kind of shifted because you're like, well, now it's just talent without borders. Right. And so it doesn't even matter where you're at anymore. And that maybe that's why it's so hard to find great people right now, because people are saying, well, screw it. It doesn't matter where you are. And we'll throw right. you a bunch of money if you'll come work for us. 
Yeah. I mean, it's a applicant's market right now. Like if you're the mm-hmm. talent, it's your market, you know, and it very, it happens very rarely, but I do think good people are always in demand. And the geography thing is interesting because we're based in New York city and we've had people who move to other geographies, you know, usually it's the reverse. People are moving here for a role and here they're moving to other places. So I think it really democratizes hiring and allows you to really get the best people for the best role, regardless of where they are. And I think we'll see that continue and also probably move into more international skill sets and roles too, mm-hmm. because again, people can work from anywhere. So yeah, big time. Well, uh, you're up. What have you got for me? Let's see. Let me ask you. Okay. Let me look at my list here. What do you think is more important, uh, a retailerzone.com or marketplaces like Amazon, Walmart, eBay? Oh, okay. that's a good one. I like that. So this is a, a, a an interesting um, challenge that I hear a lot of our clients talk about. You know, in I've been obviously ran my own fair share of e-com businesses over the years. You know, whether it was a, a Bugaboo or, or Backyard Discovery or uh, you know, Nixon, the watch brand, and of course the CEO and the CFO you know, keep trying to push you uh, to the dot-com because they think that there's a perceived sense that the margins are, are much, much better there because um, of the fees, the, the, I guess the lack of fees. But what I'm finding is that, frankly, as aspirational as people want to have, uh, you know, their own kind of giant dot-com and have clients, you know, route through all that, clients are always going to pick the path of least resistance and they're going to lean towards the the marketplaces. I, I don't want to use myself as a sample size of one, but I definitely find that you know I, I find myself going back to Amazon very frequently just to do all my orders, just because it's so easy and, and integrated. I think that you know as business owners and as entrepreneurs and as leaders, we need to be able to separate our kind of aspirational needs and and thinking through a customer first mentality. And the reality is, it is more convenient. Uh, for the customers in most cases, unless the brand can offer a better experience uh, to go, go through the marketplaces. Most of the businesses I'm seeing now, the marketplace business is uh, you know larger than the dot-com factor, in some cases by a factor of 10 or more. So even though you think that maybe the outside perception is like our, our dot-com should be where it's at, again, unless you can offer that better experience, I think that you know you have to nail your marketplaces because they're they're going to be absolutely one of your biggest um, revenue channels. Yeah. And I think it's such a big discovery tool for brands also. Mm. It's very hard to compete with Prime. And, you know, even a few years ago, I would have said, I don't know if you should be on Amazon. It might be brand erosive. It might hurt your margins and your regular business. It's not a question of either or anymore. You, you must be on the marketplaces and have your own kind of flagship.com, I think. You know, you really have to. Quite literally last night, I was shopping for a, a, a hiking backpack for cameras. And and the, I'm not going to name, name check the brand, but they they were selling the main backpack on Amazon. It was the same price. They had price parity with uh, their .com. But you couldn't buy any of the accessories on Amazon. And I couldn't decide if this was a feature or a flaw. Right. You know what I mean? Like, had they done this to try and drive people that down? Because people were mentioning it in the Q&A in the comments section, or if they just hadn't really got their Amazon act together. Would, would you, if you had to, if you had to guess, would you say that they were they trying somehow to push people to the dot com? Because I did end up ordering 
on the dot com in the end because I wanted these accessories and I wanted it all come through through one thing. Yeah, I mean, if I have my customer hat on, I want the easiest experience possible, which is getting everything in one place at one time. So I would have probably done what you did, which is place the order in one place. Amazon yeah. can be tricky depending on your relationship with them. And if you're a wholesale or a 1P partner versus a 3P partner and what product you put up there. And a lot of people who are on Amazon are also in many other channels like specialty retail or department stores. And so they're always trying to balance like who gets what parts of the assortment and how does that all work, play nice together. So there's not, sometimes mm. there's a lot going on behind the scenes around assortment and what's available where. And also PS supply chain is really weird right now and stuff is mm. like you can't find. isn't everything a little weird right now <laughs> so i'm gonna change gears here for a second you know as you know i've spent my fair share of time in, in agency land uh before jumping brand side you know, around a decade ago uh now you know, i don't believe you've ever been on the agency mm-hmm. side and i'd love to know from your standpoint How do you get the most out of your agency relationships? You know, I think so much of the agency relationship that's important is happens before the contract is signed in the getting to know you phase and the RFP phase and that conversational phase about how, how we'll work together. I think post post contract, when you're really in the relationship, it's a relationship. Like the most important things I think are communication And I would say radical transparency. Like if you feel like you don't have a company or a team at that company that you can be radically transparent with, you're probably not with the right agency. And them being a true extension of your team is what really helps drive the business forward. If you're not worried about sharing information, if you're really working hand in hand, I've seen that be kind of the most successful from a relationship perspective. And I also think having the right team at an agency is critically important. So, you know, don't, I would say, you know, what I say to people is don't be afraid to switch. Like, don't be afraid to say, hey, we want to switch this person out or this is not working or we're looking for a new skill set because it's a lot of work to pick an agency. And when I do, I want to be with an agency for a good chunk of time. So I want to make sure it's really beneficial relationship for both sides. Uh, And one last thing I'll say is, it's really important to pick the right size agency for your business and your budget. Because if you pick an agency that's too big, you're not going to get enough attention. And if you pick an agency that's too small, they're not going to be enough of forward thinking and have kind of other bigger businesses leading the way. Yeah. And one of the other things you pointed out that I thought was really interesting was talking about replacing you know individuals on the team. And I think when, when people think about an agency, a lot of the times, they, they think about it as this kind of amorphous group. But at the end of the day, you do get assigned people that become part of your crew, at least if they're doing it well. And, and I think it's important to know those people and not, and not just have a relationship with just the account manager, because then I think you don't really know who's on the team. You don't have a continuity. And I think you should, you know, as, as a, uh, the client, pick agencies that want you to have relationships with their people. Uh, they're kind of keeping it all behind some kind of uh, Wizard of Oz-like veil. I don't think that's in the best interest of you or your business. So, okay, well, what do you uh, what do you got for me? I have a question for you. So, you know, there's a lot of bells and whistles out there for running a digital business. I mean, what do you think is 
kind of the most important, maybe newer tactic out there? And what do you think is something that's been really underutilized? Oh, okay. That's a good one. I feel like, you know, there's obviously when you, when you, when you kind of go into war in, in the e-commerce space, uh, there's all the go-to tactics that people should, or table stakes, you got to be great at them. You know, you need to be great at uh, SEO. You need to be great at email. You need to absolutely be great at, at uh, paid media channels and really optimizing them. We're an area that I don't, I think people talk about, but they don't really leverage a lot is about basically A-B testing and, and, and conversion rate optimization, really optimizing down at the, um, at the page level. I think that, you know, of course, a lot of the big players go do this and they've got the, you know, you know these multi-million dollar e-commerce businesses. They'll, they'll have these teams that are out there just constantly optimizing around that. But most uh, uh, smaller businesses, you know, they go, hey, we built a website and they do it. And that's the end of the journey. They do it, they build it, it's done, you know, they move on. And, you know, they think it's like I made this thing and I'm done. But if you, you know, right now, the big trend that I'm seeing I'm sure you're seeing as well is uh, media costs are rising. Uh, it's getting so it's getting more and more expensive to get customers back, you know, into into your site. And if those costs are rising and there doesn't seem to be anything we can do about that trend, then that what they need to do is extract more out of more out of every every person you can get to the site. And that comes down to conversion rate optimization. So there are a lot of tools out there that will allow you to do A-B testing for anyone out there who's watching this who doesn't know what I'm talking about. Uh, that is you know, effectively sending traffic to, to a website, a landing page for a product. And you've got a script that effectively shows multiple variations of that same landing page. Maybe between the two pages, you've put a price up here, you've moved the image around, you've changed the headline, you've changed some copy, um, whatever it may be. And you're serving these things up in in uh, you know almost at the same time, so that you can reduce the number of variables that might cause the statistical analysis to go off. And you can say, man, that change we made right here, that's eking out an extra six percent, or three percent, or even one percent uh, of more conversions over a period of time. And I think that the more sophisticated your e-commerce business gets, the more important it becomes that these tiny little incremental wins. Or what when your business and again people talk about this a lot and a lot of people seem to be aware of this but if you ask me what's underutilized i would say it's that they talk the talk but they don't they don't back it up and actually put this into play and you know i, th- I think it's pe- something that a lot more people need to get you know really really serious about would any reactions to that yeah you know i would agree with you know the the media co- i think we've all been sort of i hate to say it, but kind of fat dumb and happy acquiring customers really inexpensively for the past few years. And that is coming to a screeching halt. And we've got to kind of go back to old time values of really taking care of our existing customers and nurturing that second or third purchase. Um, And I do think that's where CRO conversion rate optimization comes into play. I think the reason why people want to do it and don't do it is because it's maybe not as easy as they wish it were. Um, and it requires. I totally agree with that. It's, de- it's definitely uh, they start going down the path, and then it's like they realize that they run into tech issues, right. or they don't know how to implement it, or they don't know how to do tests properly. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah, agree. I think it comes down to resources, creative resources, and also marketing resources who can really assess and evaluate what's happening. And I think 
you can get a really, you should get a really good tech partner to help you implement that and run it alongside you at least for a while until you feel confident in doing it. But, and I think with AB testing, you kind of have to take some big swings. If you kind of, you can tweak minor things. If you're a massive website with lots of traffic, you can tweak the color of buttons and the positioning and that stuff can matter. But if you start by taking some big swings and proving the value to the organization of doing it, I think you can get a lot more traction and go a lot faster after that. So good advice. So putting you on the spot now, you actually were going to ask me what you thought was some of the new up and coming tactics. And I I intentionally left that out of my answer (laughs) because that was exactly what I was about to ask you. So I'd love to know when you think about e-commerce strategies specifically for 2022. So coming up next year, we, we kind of alluded at the beginning of the show that a lot was changing right now and things were, you know, maybe accelerating or changing. Um, But I'd love to see, what you think will be the most important strategies for, for next year? Well, definitely along the lines of engagement, I think SMS is by far the mm. most critically important thing. It used to not be that cool. People weren't really that interested in it. We've seen a massive migration towards SMS from email. You know, email is still like number one killer app for communicating with people and mm. big driver of traffic and revenue for websites, right? But SMS is kind of really coming along and people, that's how they want to interact. They want to know when their product is shipping. They want to know when it's being delivered. They want to reach out to a customer service associate. They want to get messages about what's going on promotionally and all of that through SMS. And I think it's kind of like this land, like this uh, land grab to capture SMS addresses. I think that's one of the most important things for 2022 Second most important thing I would say back to media, rising media costs is figuring out how to diversify your market mix beyond Facebook and Instagram and Google. You've got to be testing into smaller other marketplaces and um, opportunities, you know, to really offset your reliance on Facebook and Instagram and also to help offset the costs rising there. I, I got follow, follow-ups on that. So, the the mobile uh, one is something I've been really interested in for a while. I happen to be a big fan of Attentive as, as a platform and uh, been lucky enough to um, actually be an advisor for them. So I really love the space. I've been w- watching it for a while now. I think it's interesting when you think about, let's say, last year, because I think this has been a growing trend, even with people not being out and about as much, mobile still where it's at, um, you know, in terms of, I think, shifting sands in terms of you know, people kind of shifting that platform. I can't, I hope uh, that in 2022, that this is going to accelerate even more as people start getting out and about even more than they are now, because I do think that there's a, you know, an on the go kind of obviously mentality that comes along with your, with your mobile phone. The second one though, I, you know, if just jotting, looking at my notes, um, this concept of, uh, you know, fixing your, your, the market mix, you know, to your point, and I think everyone realizes we're all like hyper dependent on on these particular you know, subset of, of giant tech platforms. I, I guess I'm going to ask about uh, everyone's favorite in the news lately with with Facebook. Is, do you think this is finally? Like, do you think we're going to finally see some re- reduction in adoption there? I feel like something about this time feels different than last time in terms of really starting to piss people off. You know, I've even debated whether, like, I, you know, I'm I'm ready to like just nuke the account. Yeah. I don't think I can do because I need to be connected to it for professional reasons. But 
But I think other people that don't have those kind of barriers might, might you know, really um, drop off. Any ideas of what you think is going to happen? There's a little off subject, but I'm dying to get well, your, your take so on Freddie, it. So, Freddie, I think the most important thing I would say is you're not normal, right? <laughs> we're not, <laughs> not normal people, right? right? We're marketers. <laughs> and, like, so if you think about standard consumers, you know, like – I'm not saying that people aren't aware of the issues. I mean, people were aware that, you know, Facebook was down for half a day and it was like critical worldwide for how people communicate because it was Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp. Right? Yeah, no, fair enough. Right? But I, I think that's one thing I think you have to think about as marketers is constantly about, you know, where's the puck going and how, when is your consumer there? Right. So TikTok for sure. Who's really? I was gonna say if I had to pick one place where right. I'd start moving money, I think TikTok is is awesome. For sure. And like a year or two ago, I would have maybe said a thirty-five plus customer is probably not there. Well, guess what? They're there. So I think it's these things talking about things moving more quickly. Like these kinds of things are moving a lot more quickly. So I think it's um it's gonna be fascinating to watch. I think. It's such a big part of the economy now that I don't think it can just, you know, go away. But will people change their interest level? Possibly. I think what yeah, also will happen is the big giants aren't going to be able to snap up other companies as much because there's a lot of focus on antitrust. So that those independent companies are either going to be bought by other players or going to be more independent for longer. So what's next for you, Andrea? So I have a question for you. So, you know, you've lived all over the world, right? You've lived in Europe, you've lived in the UK, you've lived in China, you've lived in the US, um, and you've worked globally, right? What is the most important thing to grow a global business? Like, and what do people, especially Western people kind of either overlook or don't understand when they're trying to grow a global business? That's an awesome question. Uh, it, is, it is certainly uh, complex, uh, very, very complex. Uh, I think when I think back uh, to my career, and I, let's, I'm going to use marketing as a reference, digital marketing as a reference before I talk specifically about e-commerce, you know, I've, been, I've worked on marketing and digital marketing campaigns that have been in over 100 markets, I think maybe in some cases even over 130 markets simultaneously. And there's obviously incredible amounts of planning and so on that needs to go into that, whether it's localization to just the sheer volume of assets and things like that that need to be created. With e-commerce, it's a totally different level of complexity. You know, as uh, uh, you know, Americans or when you're at least thinking about the, the U.S. market, when we think about marketplaces, we're like, oh, you mean by marketplaces, you mean Amazon or, you know, maybe Walmart.com at this point. But, you know, when, when you start dealing with uh, even just, you know, Europe, uh, for example, like when I was uh, working at Bugaboo, you just just having not not mentioned all the ones spread across Europe, but just Bol bol dot com, which was which was just mainly the the big one. You know, the Amazon alternative in the Netherlands. You had to have it; it was important. And there is, you know, a, a dozen of these, uh, or certainly half a dozen. You know, just across Europe. Then you factor in the the complexity of China with its own set of marketplaces. Then you've got all the the um, multiple logistics and fulfillment centers that are there tax implications oh god the tax implications the complexities of it this is not not for the the faint of heart i mean this is it's a it's a really complicated approach i think what's really changed over the last uh, couple of years or that there 
just kind of like how there's technology that's made e-commerce a lot easier for people or media management and marketing a lot easier for folks, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, I mean, hell, even just looking at something like a Shopify that just made it made it easy to launch, you know, an e-commerce platform for a lot of folks. You know, they're even those guys are coming out with things that are simplifying, you know, how you do global logistics. Uh, you know, I've talked to businesses out there that their whole strategy is about, you know, building brands and, and spreading them uh, across markets and taking the playbook and repeating it. And their secret sauce is understanding you know, how to attack these different markets, how to deal with the compliance laws, how to deal with, I mean, how to even working with GDPR when it deals to Europe. Right. It's, it's just, it's just a, a very complex business. And so where this gets particularly challenging isn't just the knowledge that's needed and the operational know-how, but there are major cost implications for all of this. And when you are breaking into a new market and you haven't got revenue there yet, trying to go do that kind of stuff and absorbing the cost of the learnings and everything that goes along with that until that's a market that generates enough revenue to make it worth it is also a pain point. So that's why, you know, larger businesses have an un- really serious unfair advantage, I think, um, to a lot of startups and, and in some regards, because they can leverage their scale and the efficiencies of that scale to break new markets in a way that would be really, really painful um, for a smaller business. But like I said, just like how technology has enabled so many new people to start businesses in new fields, you know, things that I would have thought would have cost a million dollars uh, 20 years ago, you know, some, I feel like someone can spin up and do for $20 a month now, you know, in the e-commerce business, I think you're seeing that same stuff now coming into place, uh, breaking down the barriers um, uh, globally. Um, but I, my, I guess my one bit of recommendation or one recommendation I would make to anyone who is thinking about this kind of stuff is go educate yourself. And that is not, a, that is not the, uh, the typical uh, go educate yourself, which means go read three blog posts and you'll be done. Um, <laughs> there's it's a, it's a, lot of, a lot of complexity here and it, and it, and it, does, um, it does take you know, quite a bit of reading and painful and if I will say, oh, ship moments, uh, but, you know, to to really feel like you're you're versed in in, in running a global e-commerce business. I I, I earn my global e-com creds. <laughs> cool. Uh, with that, uh, you know, that that's uh, I think uh, I like that question. I, I don't get asked a lot about global stuff, and it's fun to fun to actually get a chance to to talk about it. So, you know, a second ago I asked you about. Uh, e-commerce trends and like strategy and marketing trends for 2022. I want to put you on the spot again about thinking about the future uh, with the, you know, what, what, what do trends look like in 2022? And this time though, instead of talking specific to, let's say the growth and marketing side of it, I'd love to understand what your take is maybe around the broader industry trends, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I think the supply chain thing has really been on my mind. And they're saying that these supply chain issues are going to continue into next year. And I think it's going to really force companies to take a hard look at how they produce goods and how they get goods from point A to point B, regardless of what you sell. Like, so for example, my my phone died this week and I needed to go to the store and buy a new phone. And I went in and they were, I was like, I want to get the new phone. They were like, oh yeah, we don't have that. We're out of that. We've been out of that. Like we get one or two a day in, people wait in line, then they resell them. We have this phone left and we have it in one color. <laughs> and I was like, well, I need a phone within the hour. So I guess that's my choice. So I think 
consumers are having limited choices and that's creating some frustration. And also at the same time, prices are going up because there's really no choice. Like the costs are rising and businesses have to raise costs in order to make money and survive. So I think that's going to force some re-engineering of things. This labor shortage, it's a global labor shortage, Mm. right? I think that's going to continue to impact buying of goods for sure. So that's been kind of on my mind. Also, I think this globalization, I think is going to become even more important as this happens. So I think those kind of things. And also I think really this whole marketing mix thing is really going to be continue to keep us all on our toes. And I think even though I said we're not normal people, I think the the privacy things that are happening are long time coming and have are really needed in terms of the iOS 14 update from Apple this year, which allows Apple to control customer data, but in a nutshell, and uh, and also protect consumers' privacy by not allowing apps to track who you are and what's happening. It really muddies the water when you're trying to understand what's working from a performance marketing perspective. Cookie deprecation is coming in a couple of years. I think as a consumer, those privacy things have been needed and have been a long time coming. As a marketer, it's going to force us to be, you know, really think differently about how we work. So I do worry that the the implications of this stuff, it's making some of the acquisition channels that marketers have used for well, it's making them pretty unsustainable. And the economics just don't make sense in, in some regards. I'm hoping that we figure out these these challenges over the next you know year, but it's starting to not make the business look as appealing. And there is a chance that yeah. the cost implications of that will get passed down to consumers. And there 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 will be a literal price to pay for this balance that 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 is maybe not been balanced very well around privacy and, and making it easier to, to reach uh, customers. So I'm also worried that I believe in, in consumer privacy, but mainly yeah. because there are bad actors out there. But instead of kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, I wish they had found a way to not punish the good actors in marketing along with everyone else, because I think it's really hurting people's ability to do business. And, and, and I, you know, I'm a human first, but I'm also a capitalist and I'm an entrepreneur and I, and I respect what it means to, yeah. to try and run a business. It's just a shame when all the yahoos ruin it for the rest of us, as usual, by the way. <laughs> so. Right. It's really true. And I think it's a good point. Like we have benefited from lower costs as a result of all this ability on the marketing side of things. So it will be interesting to see what happens there. I think it's a really good point. Like, what's the price of this increased privacy? You know. So I think that is that over to you. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think it's, it's my turn. So I have a good one. So you have been, without you know, by definition, wildly successful in your career in big companies. Yeah, that's my fair share of flops. <laughs> yes, but you've been also super successful in big companies as an entrepreneur running Chameleon Collective, which is really a massive business now. And as leaders, you know, we, we focus a lot on the wins, but sometimes we learn the most from the losses. And I know you kind of poke around on this topic with other guests on the show. So now I'm going to ask you, like, what have you learned the most from things that haven't worked out? Or what's, you know, what's, what's the biggest lessons that you've learned from things that did, have- did you, just, did you just, oh, ship me on my own show, Andrea? <laughs> 
Gotcha. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm, I'm going to roll with this. I was not expecting that. Uh, that's a good. Are you we see saying how I set it up about how successful you've been, though, first? I laid it out, though. So we should we um, are we talking specific to the ecom world? However you want to answer it, whatever you think. Okay, that's that's a good one. I'm gonna I'm gonna answer specific to ecom because I want to I want to make it in in context. I think of today's theme. Uh, I could do a whole a whole a whole show. I'm guessing on uh, on you know on just kind of the broader things I've learned over the years, and and I probably should do at some point. Uh, uh, but I would say. Uh, I'm trying to think about things that, re- that were really painful that I've learned, you know, in the last four or five, let's call it interim leadership roles I've had for various brands. I think one of the trickier ones, and I have to be very careful about you know, names and so on, and so I'm just, but, I, but I still want to be able to talk about it, is I, w- I was in a situation where I needed to uh, help a, a, an organization uh, turn around and they needed to move um, really fast and it was, a, it was a big business, and we had a lot of things that we needed to change at the same time. One of those things was that there was a uh, proprietary e-commerce platform, a custom e-platform, e-platform that was being developed. It was a headless e-commerce, and, and it had a lot of different technical interdependencies. And although I find uh, headless e-commerce kind of very exciting, I think in the in the situation of needing to move first, the thing that I learned was that unless you have an exceptionally good reason for having to go down that path, and and we did actually have a reason I think at the beginning of the project, but uh, I'd say that unless you know, unless there's a really exceptional reason for going down that path, you know, the lesson is don't reinvent the wheel. I think, you know, in today's world, we've alluded to this actually through a lot of the things you and I have shared. You know, I think there was this common theme you and I kept talking about, which was, hey, there's this great tech that's coming out and people keep introducing things that remove the friction and make it easy for you to to do lots of big, amazing, powerful things that would have been off the table, uh, you know, even five years ago. And so I guess my lesson is if you're trying to move fast and and you have a you know a lot of things that you need to get done. Don't don't get distracted uh, by trying to reinvent the wheel. You know, in hindsight, using my own advice even earlier for underutilized tactics, if I had re taken that time and reapplied it away from going down the kind of a rabbit hole on some custom technology and said, let's figure out a way to make this work with as much off the shelf stuff as we can. And then all of that extra resource and time and effort that we had, let's apply that into optimization, whether it's landing page optimization, media, money, general growth. I think it would have been time better well spent. Yeah, and if I and I could tell you if I ever run into a similar situation like that again, it was seared into uh, my brain, um, you know, to 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 learn from that. I mean, I, I promise, I love I love technology and I love innovation. It's easy to get sucked down these paths. But it's it's not it's not the right play unless there's truly extraordinarily circumstances in my in my opinion. So now that since I had I had to be honest, you since you just oh shipped me on my own <laughs> show, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to inverse the question now. So what's the biggest thing you've learned specific to e-commerce? Because I want to mm-hmm. keep it in theme. You know what's the biggest lesson you've learned from a, a failure in the e-commerce world throughout your career? You know mine is a little bit similar to yours. And I think 
you know, it was a again, not really going to get too specific or name names, but it was a massive tech project, multiple vendors, lots of internal and external resources, big price tag, short window, like really too tight of a window to really execute. And I think the biggest mistake I made was accepting the mission up front. Like I should have said, hey, like, let's take a step back and see if this is really even doable. And what are the real milestones? And what are we going to hope to achieve? I mean, I've seen website redesign projects get derailed by months over like creative stuff. Like forget the tech. Like sometimes it's even just getting people to align on creative things. So I I think the biggest failure was not properly sizing the project and setting the right expectations up front. So so it wasn't optimism. You just like just doing the diligence up front to make sure, maybe a little bit of optimism and then not doing the diligence with it to make sure you really understood what you're getting into. I think that was a big part of it, yeah. And I think Mm -hmm. a lot of tech companies are built to be agile and a lot of businesses are not agile. And those two things, it's very hard to get those two things to work well together when people want to work in two-week chunks on things and the business Mm. needs a bigger picture and a timeline and a project. And so Mm. um, I think that was my biggest learning. Echoing this sentiment, by the way, and I should know better because I've been in what I'm about to say. I should know better because I've been in this business for so long. But, you know, we've got an internal project we've been working on right now. And and I, I fully committed myself this time to not letting anyone even think about laying a lick of code down until we had not not done some wireframes, but had a massive, fully clickable prototype of the entire entire project, and we spent five months on the design. And I think you know clients and and brands and internal teams that kind of freaks them out. But I'm absolutely convinced that we are, we've shaved an equal amount of months off the dev, and I can promise you that the design costs you know, one third of what we're spending on the devs. So although it, you can you can almost like spend as much or even more time on the design because what happens in these big businesses that you build it and then half the time they don't show it and then the CEO or whoever comes in goes, ah, I don't like this bit and change it. You're like, they don't understand the implications of that. And so it's sometimes painful to feel like you're not building or creating these things. But man, at least you, you know, by the time you do start coding and developing and things like that, everyone really understands what they're getting into. And, and uh, like I said, I should have known better, but I'm, I'm, I'm living a little bit of one of your lessons uh, right now. And it, it's an yeah. echoing that it's, it's, it's the right to do it. You, you got to think these things through and make sure you understand the mission. Um, and you're not setting your people up for failure too, which right. is also super. Right. And also like you assume a project's maybe going to be 20, 25% longer and over budget, right? Like yeah. you just kind of know mentally, but once you start to get beyond that, now you're starting to be like, should we be scrapping this? Then you already invested money. Like it just gets so complicated. So I think more time up front, the planning part is so critical. Yeah, that's good. So, you know, I want to be conscious of time. This has been such a great chat. You and I could have sat and talked about this for two hours, uh, but I th- I'm throwing out one of my questions because I wasn't expecting you to, to sideswipe me with my own theme of the show. So I'm, gl- I'm glad I got to ask you that, that question back. To, we promised everyone we go through uh, 10, 10 questions. I think we've got one left, and I think that's, uh, that's you. My turn. All right. So if you are like new to the market or a smaller kind of business, you don't have unlimited money and resources, what's the most important one or two things that you should be investing in? 
in 2022. We're talking like a sub million dollar kind of startup. I would say under 10 million. Anything under 10 million is kind of small, right? Uh, for me, <laughs> SEO, SEO, SEO all day long. You know, it's like media is expensive and uh, SEO doesn't give you it. Most people don't have the patience for SEO. So, you know, they, they want they they launch something and they want this quick wins and you get, especially an entrepreneur or startup founder is like, yeah, I built this thing. I want everyone to see it. And they want to spend that money and get that, that fix, you know, quick fix of some traffic and, and get some right. people on the site. But Nailing SEO is, is where it's at. I mean, it, I, I can speak firsthand for a small business that, that uh, and, you know, been running as kind of a, a side hustle. Yes, I don't know. People hear I, I say I have a side hustle. Like, when is this man sleeping? But yes, I even I have side hustles. And, um, you know, we spent we spent time on on getting the SEO right. And the company is, you know, eight, 900% up. And that doesn't cost us anything. There's no media cost. You know, we can... You know, you can go and you obviously want to get your paid channels right, but we're using the revenue that we generated from nailing search engine optimization to fund the paid media, which is a further accelerating the growth. And I think some people, when you say SEO, they they kind of like haphazardly do it or they think they've thrown some keywords in there. They're not really, really doing it right. You know, whether that's optimizing an incredible keyword strategy on a marketplace like Amazon, and there's a whole game to that. Um, and and uh, you know to the same thing with 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 web. This is the quickest way to, to kind of cut out some of your competition or just make sure you're pervasive. And uh, I did you did say the word game earlier. It could be fun. I know this sounds surprising to some folks, and if you're not a tech person or marketing person, you make that make that sound nuts. But as a 43 uh, year old man child who still still plays video games. I, I see SEO like playing video games and it's, it's uh, you know, you're gaming the system. You're trying to look for opportunities that maybe you're underutilized and, and grab those. You're trying to understand the customer and, and think about the ways that people search stuff. And I think one of the things that always entertains me so much about SEO is I'm just dumbfounded by some of the ways that people search. It's not how I would think about something, but it's not about how you think. It's about how yeah. understanding how other people think. And if you can game that really well, even as a really small player, I think in most cases, unless you're in a super, super competitive industry, let's say like insurance that I think, you know, is one of the hardest com- you know, insur- uh, com- industries in the world to, to you know, succeed at because there's so many good A-grade players in it. But if you're in a smaller industry and you've got a more of a niche, I think there's still exceptional opportunities to come out there and use SEO to rank without spending a dime. And you know what? If you're an entrepreneur and you're not even tech savvy, you don't have to be a programmer to teach yourself SEO. You can go out there. You can read some blog posts about it. I'm not, you know, I'm technical, but I'm not a coder anymore. And it can be fun. So that would be my recommendation. Get out there and get really serious about SEO. Cool. This is great, Andrea. I, I loved your questions. Uh, I thought this is, I hope, uh, I hope I gave answers that satisfied you. I, I really loved hearing your your take on everything. Thanks again for uh, participating. If people want to check out NestMYC, I believe it's nestmyc.com, correct? NestNewYork.com. 
Yeah, nestnewyork.com. My apologies. Speaking of SEO. And uh, do you, do you, are you on Twitter or any place else that you'd love for people to check you out? Um, LinkedIn. I'm not really so into Twitter, but you can find me on LinkedIn. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of over, I'm over my Twitter love affair. Well, <laughs> feel free to look Andrea up on, on uh, LinkedIn and uh, she's always uh, sharing interesting things there. So a uh, good, good place to, to connect with her. And for those of you watching or listening through our audio podcast, thank you again for tuning in to our ship. Uh, it really means the world to us. Um, the best thing you can do to support the show is give us a like, follow, tell your friends to check out oshipshow.com where you can see links to all of the different places where it's live streaming or getting quick access to any of the different podcast platforms that we now distribute our content on. We hope to see you uh, back on our next episode. We're going to take a quick brief, uh, brief break while I take a holiday. But I look forward to seeing you on the other side of that where I will be uh, refreshed and relaxed. Andrea, thank you again for your time. And thanks, everyone, for watching O-Ship. The O-Ship Show is brought to you by Chameleon Collective, where we lead, scale, and adapt to build and grow great companies. You can learn more at chameleoncollective.com. Freddie, will see you next time when we will once again be raising the sales for the O-Ship Show.